From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Battlefield Podcast, where we cover everything from the front lines to the home front. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Faint, here today with my longtime friend, fellow war veteran, and author of the book, The Armor of God and Armor Officers' Faith, Growth, and Protection in Combat, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Matt Sacra. As a reminder, if you enjoy today's podcast, please subscribe, download, and leave us a five-star review. Many thanks to the Epic Times for hosting the Battlefields Project and to the Havoc Journal and the Second Mission Foundation for their support. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners and supporters all over the world. Without further ado, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Matt Sacra, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, I thought we'd start at the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, how you grew up, and what made you decide to make the the jump and join the Army as an officer? Yeah, that's a good question. So I really started off um, normal, you know, middle class family. My dad was uh, working for NSA and he was in the Navy Reserves. He had actually gone, I think, seven years enlisted and then 20 years officer in the in the Navy Reserves. He had done a little time in Vietnam and, and for Desert Storm, he had gotten called up to one of the most dangerous places ever, uh, Washington, D.C., um, as he used to joke with us. And so I, I had a little bit of that. I also, my, on my mom's side, my grandfather was, um, I called him my pop up. He had been in World War II and he went uh, just to the, I want to say east of Point du Hoc um, in Normandy. And he was with what was called the 29th Rangers. Technically there was no such unit, um, but he was with the 29th Division and the Rangers that were attached to them. He used to train in Acnecary, Scotland. And uh, and do some secret missions in Norway and such for World War II. So I, I had an early exposure uh, growing up that my parents had shared that. My brother actually he went into the Navy, and so I had thought about the military very little, uh, but I still had thought about it. Like for example, when I was five years old, I wanted to be a tank, and people said, "Oh, you want to like drive a tank?" And I said, "No, I, I want to be a, a tank." Uh, don't ask me; it made sense to a five year old. And I was also five when I played my first game of Risk and I started taking a liking to strategy. Now, I didn't win that game, but I did win my first Risk game at age eight. And I started thinking, hey, maybe I have a knack for this kind of stuff. Um, sometimes I'd sneak into my brother's room once we had separate rooms as teenagers. And I would just look at his like World War II books and look at all the arrows that were um, pointing to different countries of where the Nazis invaded or where the Allies had pushed them back. And the same thing in the Pacific theater. And so I, I started to realize that I had an interest in this stuff, but my my passion for dinosaurs was way bigger. So at that time, I wanted to be a paleontologist um, up until I was 13. So you went from wanting to be a tank to being a paleontologist. Yeah, yeah I did. I, I just love dinosaurs so much that I was memorizing them all, trying to figure out everything I could about them. And, and I thought I would do that until I was a teenager. So, Matt, why did you decide specifically on the Army? You said you, I think you said your brother joined the Navy. Why didn't you follow his footsteps? Yes, because when I looked at the Navy, um, the first thing I thought of was the uniforms, the ones that look like Cracker Jacks. Silly reason, I know, but it just it looked ridiculous, and I never wanted to wear something like that. And then the more I thought about it, 
the strategy stuff that I always loved and I started having a liking to war movies. Um, I realized that it was, there were some interesting naval ones, but mostly I loved the ground combat. I loved watching The Longest Day or Patton and movies like that that showed um, people conquering and I, I was still fond of tanks. So it, it was that in part. The other thing is when I was uh, 16 years old, coming up on 17, I was in the Boy Scouts and this was right before I had made Eagle Scout. And I was going out and doing, you know, different types of uh, obstacle course training, rappelling and, you know, running through the woods. We would play kind of little mock war games that we would make up. Never had done paintball at that point in my life, but I got a brochure in the Army from the Army Reserve in the mail. And it said, how much would you pay, you know, one weekend a month to do? And then it shows all this cool Army guy stuff and camouflage, you know, repelling up a rock wall or and down it and um and people running through the woods shooting each other with with mock weapons and i thought well man i pay ten dollars a month to go camping with the boy scouts so i guess i'd pay ten dollar a month ten dollars a month <laughs> and then you flip the page over and it says how about if we pay you army reserve 110 dollars a month and i was just like wow really so that kind of helped me to put the strategy stuff that i had loved as a kid and the tank stuff and also what I learned about my grandfather and my papa um, in World War II, kind of together with my love for strategy and those things anyway that I was doing in Boy Scouts. And I was like, yeah, maybe maybe Army is the way to go. So how did you actually join? Did you do ROTC? Did you go to West Point, OCS? Did you enlist first? How did, what were the mechanics of you getting in the Army? That's a good question, too. I, so I started off with talking to the Marines and I talked to uh, Army recruiters. They were both trying to seek after me. For their numbers, not because not there's anything super special about me, but they, they wanted me to enlist. And the more I had talked to the Marines, they said, well, what you really are craving as a passion for is, is officer stuff. And I said, yeah, that, that's what I'm looking at. But I, you know, I, I could be enlisted for a time. I wasn't opposed to that. And um, they really wanted me to, they really wanted me to consider that later on. They, they wanted me to focus on being enlisted, but my parents were trying to prepare me for college. And so we looked at Navy ROTCs and we saw that there were a lot less of them and they were a little harder to get into in the regions that I was considering. And so ultimately I decided, well, maybe I should do Army ROTC then. Those are like everyone. And since I was also talking to the Army recruiters, I thought, well, I wouldn't want to do Marine enlisted reserves, but Army ROTC. I, I just want to do Army Army or, or you know do the same for both of them. And so when the Army recruiter offered me a, a, a good deal of enlisting, and trying to get me something into civil affairs that I'd wanted at the time, um, I, I said, okay, yeah, let's let's do this. It, se- it just seemed like a much easier path in the Marine Corps. And so because I had concluded that I was going to go to college and try Army ROTC, it, it just made sense to enlist that. So I enlisted in 96 in the reserves. Very nice. So 96, that's about the time that I joined the Army as well. Kind of an interesting time to be in the force. Not a lot going on. I guess we had the Balkans. And then, what, five years later, things kind of changed, right? So how long did you spend enlisted before you switched over to officer? So I, I was only enlisted in the reserves for a year. Mm-hmm. And that was because um, the recruiter, it's hard for people to imagine a recruiter doing something dishonest, but he, <laughs> he, he basically signed me up for doing um, basic training and advanced individual training or AIT back to back. And that would, would have meant I would have missed my entire first semester of college that I was enrolled at. And my parents kind of caught that uh, after I caught it, I brought it up to them. And when we contacted the recruiter about it, he said, oh, yeah, I know you wanted split option where you go to basic one summer and AIT the next. 
but they were out of those. So I put you in standard option. And, and he did that without talking to my parents, to myself, and I was still 17. Wow. So uh, even though I didn't want to, my parents said, hey, we're pulling the plug on this because you're not 18 yet. And I, I didn't get to go to basic training. I did a full year of drilling it with my reserve unit, and I absolutely loved it. And I, I was really excited to, to go to basic training. And I said, well, can't we just send me to go to basic training and then just you know, not not carry on with AIT? And they said, no, it doesn't work that way. You're already in this option. They couldn't switch it. So the recruiter even admitted he couldn't change it once he had signed me up for it. And so I had to be honorably discharged from the reserves. And then I went straight into Army ROTC and I did Color Guard, Ranger Challenge. I signed up for everything that I could that first year. And it, at the time, I wanted to be like a general someday. Um, that I, I was not very focused on family and any other front in life at all or any other battlefield. It was, it was really just, I, I wanted to be a patent someday. Uh, but maybe <laughs> maybe we all have those dreams. That, that I think was so. It. I think every young person wants to see that. Yeah. So what school did you go to, Matt? So I went to Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. And um, it, it was, it had the package deal. I had gotten into, I think, Salisbury and Frostburg, but one of them was shutting down its ROTC program. And the other one, um, it had a satellite one for like the University of Delaware, that was Salisbury. And so I thought, you know, like, I'd really like to just have it all in one package. And that's what my mom had helped me uh, figure out. And Old Dominion University had that. They said, hey, our program's not going anywhere. And even though I couldn't get the scholarship immediately, um, they were able to do, you know, help me out with a, a little bit of board and then eventually room and board before I had earned the uh, the national scholarship um, a couple of years later. So you mentioned several times your interest in, in strategy, military history, things like that. Did you study something related at ODU? Yeah, I did. So my undergraduate was um, in history and it seemed the most logical fit because you could tell that a lot of famous generals were interested in history, even if that wasn't their degree. And so I thought, hey, this could help me like study battlefields. And I, I particularly concentrated in military history. So a lot of the courses that I took, if they had anything related to that, like one of them was taught by the president of the university my senior year, and it was called World War II in the Modern Eyes. And he, he taught it himself, and it, I, I loved it. Um, it. It really had a lot of critical thinking about battles and conflicts and what-if scenarios. And so I, I realized that I had a love for this stuff, so I wanted to soak up you know, whatever I could that would make me be a better better officer, better tactician, and maybe eventually a better strategist someday. Did After you got into the military, did you find that that held true? Did you think that it was a useful way to spend your time as an undergrad? Yes, I, I do. I think that there's a certain lack of tactical expertise you're going to get from studying almost too high in the clouds, like the strategic level. But I still think that it gives you enough critical thinking skills and just the knowledge of history would give you examples to be able to share with your soldiers of the bigger picture of why we're doing something. And so I, I found those to be useful. I also, I remembered an example of how somebody, an officer who had been trained in chemistry knew that in World War I, if they had urinated on, on their clothing, that they had ripped some of the uniform, they could kind of breathe through it and it would filter out the gas. So I thought, hey, yeah, there's probably other things, other degrees or majors that would have been helpful. But me just knowing that history would help me in some tactical situations like that. So yeah, I, I tended to find that. Okay, Matt. So now you've graduated from ODU, you're commissioned. What what's your first years in the army? What was that like for you? So it was it was very interesting. I had gone into armor and s several friends had told me don't put armor straight, put armor with branch detail military intelligence because you won't get armor. 
but I said, hey, if, if that's where God wants me to be, I'll be armor. And I got armor, uh, 9-11 had happened. So all of a sudden that changed. So September 11th was just a few months before I got commissioned. I did one extra semester at college because of, I would say, my own um, my own stubbornness, really. <laughs> but I basically graduated that December of 2001. And all of a sudden, people were ramping up for war uh, in Iraq specifically. Uh, Afghanistan was already a, a go. And uh, I was moving to a unit that was getting the striker. And so we knew it probably wouldn't be Afghanistan. It would mo most likely be Iraq because a, a couple of years later, you know, we were leaning there. And then 2003, as we know, uh, we went into Iraq. And so that's when I really when I got through all the training and started getting to my unit, it was looking like Iraq. And so they were getting rid of their tanks and... We had some German uh, Lukes and Fuchs surrogate vehicles that we were training on because we were the second striker unit ever. And so there was a lot of it, it was it was a lot of the kind of hurry up and wait. You're, you're moving really slowly. And then all of a sudden, once the strikers came, it was train, train, train on the strikers. Take them to Yakima Training Center, Washington State, because I was stationed at Fort Lewis, uh, Washington, or now it's called JBLM. Right. Um, and then after Yakima, it was, all right, now we have to go to the Joint Readiness Training Center, JRTC in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And then months later, we're going to go to the National Training Center at uh, Fort Irwin, California. And so it, all of a sudden, things ramped up very quickly um, from the time that we got our strikers. So after you got your strikers, your units on, on the way to Iraq, and you go there and some interesting and challenging things happen to you in Iraq. Can you take a few minutes to talk to the audience? about your experiences on the ground as an armor officer in Iraq? Yeah, definitely. So first thing was we didn't take our own vehicles over there. There was already a, the, the, the first ever striker brigade that was already on the ground. And so they said, hey, they're going to get your, your vehicles when they get back to the States. You guys are going to go and jump right in on their vehicles. And so my first experience was when we, we got to Iraq, we had to sign for the equipment and we had to do what's called left and right seat rides with the, uh, the other unit. And they showed us the battlefield. At the time, I was in Tel Afar, which was kind of quiet, but you would have a lot of people smuggling and going through the desert. And so I'm watching platoon leaders and platoon sergeants from this other platoon who are basically kind of giving us a tour of the city and of the, the, the surrounding region. And they're showing us this is what we do on patrols. This is how we treat the population. And there were some things that I, I didn't like, like somebody you know, was getting searched by one of their soldiers. And because he didn't like that they were touching him on, on his behind, he kind of moved his hand down when he was holding both hands up. And the, the sergeant that was working with him just flipped him to the ground immediately. And so th there were some things like that, but there were other things that it was really good to listen to them about when the lights go out in the city, that means there's a blackout. And so that means the terrorists have taken over the power station, or at least that happened once. So you, you want to kind of be on extra guard if you see all of a sudden the lights are going out. So there were a lot of good tips that they were giving us of good positions around the city and kind of what what interacting with the population was. And that was all helpful. Very nice. So how much time did you spend on the ground in Iraq? Let's see. The total was a, a year deployment. And I would say the first two assignments, it was really broken up into three, four month periods for me. The first four months I was a platoon leader. And during platoon leader time, it was pretty much every day. Um, there were maybe a couple exceptions if we had a maintenance day or something. But every day I was going outside the wire into the uh, the town of Telafar. And then really a few weeks after we got there, we moved to Mosul because word had it from the intel community that Mosul was about to be overrun with terrorists. And so it was, hey, we need everybody that we can get out there. 
you guys are an infantry unit and it, we were in a 124 infantry battalion that was under the command of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Carrilla, who is now, uh, I think, a three or four star general. And so he, they said, hey, we, we need everybody that we can out there. And so I was an MGS platoon leader, mobile gun system, even though it was an anti-tank guided missile striker because the MGS was not up to snuff yet during these times. They said, hey, we need you out there patrolling the streets, uh, showing a presence or a combat presence in the area and being prepared for these terrorist operations. So we were out there probably three times a day for most days. Sometimes we'd go out in, in the middle of the night. And those first four months, that was uh, some pretty heavy fighting, especially like November 10th and 11th, I remember, of 2004 that year. Uh, we had several firefights. Several police stations had been overrun, and we had to liberate those. And of course, I was doing most of the work with my my platoon on the streets, whereas infantry were getting out and they were going into the buildings a lot and clearing those of enemy. But lots of terrorists were overrunning Mosul, and we, we eventually liberated it and tried to uh, begin the task of setting up the police, setting up the Iraqi National Guard, as it was called at the time, later Iraqi Army, and try to get them all on the ground. And so that was really the first four months. The next four months for me being a, a detachment executive officer training Iraqis um, back to Tel Afar again, because I had moved from the infantry unit back to the cavalry. And then my last four months were a lot less of that. It was a, as a fabit, as they call you, or a talk hobbit, as some, uh, some say. But I was an assistant S4, a logistics officer. And I was helping also as the primary unit movement officer for the squadron that I was with. And so I did some missions then, but most of it was planning and getting other people the supplies they needed and making sure that things were running smoothly for the big operations we did. So it sounds like you and I were were both there around the same time, although of course we didn't run into each other. But I was thinking when you were talking that about to be overrun pretty much seems like the normal status for Mosul over the course of America's involvement in it from, from the time that you were there all the way up to ISIS. So yeah. Wait, were you at Mosul when the DFAC bombing happened? It was. Yeah. And that was that was in the first four months that I was there. Um, December 21st, 2004. I will definitely never forget that day. We had a lot of casualties that day and I was actually on my way into the chow hall. I probably would have been sitting right next to my commander who was killed if I had uh, not been wrestling around with some of my men before I, I went up to the to the you know chow, chow hall at that time. Yeah, I went up to I was there after I, I didn't have anything of, in, involvement with it, but I remember how striking the the dining facility was the rebuilt one that, that i'd gone to it was quite nice and i remember there was an advertisement on the table for that pajama jammy jam event and like these guys are in a completely different war than we are down in balad it was it was pretty interesting to see that so you while you were there though you were also wounded when you were in iraq right yeah actually twice although one of them counted for the, the Purple Heart in, in February. The second time was in April. Um, the first time was really, I was on a patrol and this was when I was a detachment um, executive officer. I really liked how one of my, uh, my NCOs put it. Uh, he was a, a first sergeant, great man. And he said, when I first got to the job, he said, look, we don't do the kicking indoors. He said, if you think back to the Star Wars, the, the original ones that, that came out in the 1970s and 80s, he said, you remember when the stormtroopers like kick in and they do all this, you know, shooting of the lasers and then Darth Vader walks in? He said, we're Darth Vader in that scenario. And I really like that because oh, wow. it made sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, OK, he, so the Iraqis are the ones that are doing all the stormtrooper stuff and we are Darth Vader. We walk in as the advisors. 
and we make sure that they're doing the right thing. And, you know, we might redirect some things um, if needed, but we let the, you know, the NCO and the officer that are in charge of those Iraqi soldiers that are Iraqi officers, um, we let them run the show. And if we need to adjust, we do. And so those are the type of operations I was on. And so anytime the Iraqis needed to go out to man a checkpoint in the city of Telfar, because that's where I was back at this point, then we would have, you know, three or four seven ton trucks uh, go out. And on the first time I was wounded, the particular uh, day, we had a seven ton right behind the striker that I was riding in. I would usually ride with the strikers and, um, and we would have like a platoon or two that would escort us. And so I'm standing out the back of the back hatch of this thing. And I actually, I, I felt like I was going to get hit that day. I know there are some times you feel like that and it doesn't happen. So I, I acknowledge that those occur, but I, I, even the specialist that was with me, uh, that was part of my little nomad team, as we call ourselves, he said, hey, sir, do you think we're going to have any contact today? And I said, yeah, maybe an IED or an RPG or something, but I don't think anything big. Well, I kept picturing an RPG was going to come like straight from my chin. And what actually ended up happening, what, or really my throat was what I was worried about, is I, I, I just felt this strong feeling that the further we got into Telefar, the deeper we got in the city. And I've driven through it hundreds of times. And uh, as we got closer to the spot, I, I kept moving up and down because it was very awkward in the striker. Your positioning was key. Sometimes you'd stand high. Sometimes you'd stand low because you could stand on the floor or the bench. And I felt like I was too high on the bench, too low on the floor, even with the sandbags. So I tried to just keep positioning. I finally just prayed. I said, all right, God, you, you know what I'm about to face. You, you know, you, you can see what's going on here. Just put me in the position you want me in. And I was just in the perfect spot because when the IED detonated, it was probably several 155 rounds that were deep buried um, on the median between two palm trees. And it mostly detonated on the seven ton that was behind us. And it got filled with uh, holes like Swiss cheese. But a piece of shrapnel came up and cut through my chin strap and it went right into my chin. And I just realized, man, if I was an inch higher, it would have gone in my throat. And if I was an inch lower, it would have gone right in my mouth and in the back of my throat. And so, you know, that, that could have been fatal, if not extremely uncomfortable, to say the least, in many other ways. So, I, you know, the first thing I, I did was kind of check and see, like, am I, am I hit in my throat? Because I was really worried about my neck. And everybody's like, oh, your chin, your chin. And I, I said, I don't really care about my chin. I, I'm, I'm worried about my neck. And they're like, oh, you're good. And it's funny, the first thought that comes to you is like, well, I'm wounded, so I guess I just sit here. And then it was like, you immediately just get rid of that thought because you're like, no. Like this fight has just begun and the ramp dropped and the specialist that I was, you know, was part of my team ran out. And those were also my Iraqis that, that I was, you know, in charge of. And so it's like, there wasn't even a moment of hesitation. I just ran out of the back of the ramp and started trying to evacuate them. And I, I shared that story, or at least my perspective of it later with that specialist. He got hit in the arm, by the way. And he said, sir, I, I knew as soon as I stepped out that ramp, you were right behind me. And so it was cool that he had that confidence in me that, I was even questioning in the uh, in the bench when I had first gotten hit, but yeah, went out, evacuated the Iraqis. Uh, one of them did live, and that was an answer to prayer. I was actually able to eat dinner with him, which was my specific prayer, because um, he had been hit in the throat, the temple, the cheek, and all up and uh, all down the side. He was a lieutenant that shouldn't have gone out that day, but a lot of the uh, Iraqi officers did not want to go when it was their turn to go. And he said, "You know what? I just came back, but I'll go again," because he was just that good of an officer. His name was Lieutenant Ali. And so he went out, he had gotten hit and was on crutches. He had, eventually, I think he had a, um, some type of surgery in his throat, but I was able to eat with him. Um, and the other two died. One of them died almost instantly. I tried to evacuate him. 
and he was he was too far gone. Uh, the, the middle guy in the in the carriage of the seven ton, he had lost a lot of his guts. And so I helped them to get him out and they had him on the back of the striker ramp and the medics tried working on him. And he actually died while I was in the striker with him on the way back. So, yeah, after the deep dining facility bombing and then that, you know, the first day that I got wounded, there was some gunfire in the background or around us. I, I wasn't paying attention too much to that because I knew we had security that was uh, facing out. But after that, you really start to, you know, not like war as much as uh, as you did when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different than when you're reading about it in the books if you're playing army, huh? It, yeah. Definitely. Well, Matt, this this was not at the end of your tour, right? So you had to soldier through this and keep going. How did you how did you get the strength to continue to do that? You know, it, it really came from knowing that um, I would say it boiled down to three things. One was uh, my family and, and, you know, not just my immediate family at home that I was I was over there, you know, working for and serving for, but also just our, our family in this country. Um, I felt like, all right, well, we, we have a mission. There's clear evil here that needs to be um, stopped. And we're, we're trying to stop it. We're trying to give the Iraq. Not, we're not trying to conquer and own the country. We're trying to help the Iraqi people. And so that was the other part. It was the people that I was there with. Um, it was, hey, let's let's make sure that we are leaving this a safer environment, not just for my buddy to the left and right of me, to make sure that he or she it would come back alive. But also, I, I, I would see you know families go through horrible things, Iraqi families that would be bombed by terrorists, and there weren't even any Americans anywhere any, anywhere around. I mean, they were nowhere near certain checkpoints. It was just blowing it up at the Iraqi, like a car bomb, for example, blowing it up an Iraqi checkpoint where there were either Iraqi army or none of them, only police, or sometimes only families that were at a crowded checkpoint. And I realized these people are doing evil to their own people, uh, irrespective of U.S. Mm -hmm. presence. So what can we do to help them be more safe? I mean, when I would see little girls coming in with blood in their hair to our aid station, that I was trying to help work with our interpreters to translate, you know, help reconnect with her family and comfort her, the tragedy she had just witnessed, it was just like, okay, I'm, I'm here to help people. I'm not, I'm not here to kill. That's not my focus. And so th- those were the really two big things. And then the third one was just having the, the strength that, you know, to, to know that I was doing something greater that was going to be talked about. Um, what I mean by that is I was praying every day. And from the very first mission that I went out and got to see the, the desert in Telafar that I mentioned earlier, I, I started journaling and I thought at the beginning, I would only just journal maybe like my first day and maybe any major combat days. So maybe like five to eight times or something throughout the entire year. But as I was writing that first day, I, I strongly felt in my heart and from the Lord that he said, you're going to turn this into a book for my glory. And, you know, just to be able to share the, the, the you know, times he had saved our lives, the, the growth that I had had in myself, both in leadership as an officer, but also spiritually. And so I, I felt like it was important to keep going for those reasons that even though I didn't have maybe all the right doctrines in my head um, that, that, that I might believe now uh, today, it, it was important to keep pushing through and try to do the right thing for, for others and to, to grow spiritually and as an officer. So those were a lot of the, the things that, that motivated me to keep going. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because I, I know you did write a book about your experiences because I got a copy downstairs on my bookshelf. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about Armor of God and what it's about and why you decided to take your journals and your thoughts and put them into a book? Yeah, definitely. So 
what the armor of God does is it really breaks down those three phases of my deployment, just from a personal perspective as a historian, you know, cause I ended up getting my master's in uh, military history from Louisiana state university. I, I, I was like, okay, how can I turn this into something that other people can use that just like I've read memoirs of other people from other uh, conflicts. But I also thought that having that spiritual um, aspect to it, where I was sharing, where I would either share my faith with people, whether they were Iraqis or fellow soldiers, from the American army, or whether I was just using my faith as a tool to get me through, like playing the violin at the chapel. I found that these two things were able to mix in a way that might be motivating to people of either two different genres, or maybe even the same, you know, that that are kind of combined to a degree. And so I I thought that it would be useful for that. I I did trim down a lot of it because I thought there was many things that were irrelevant, but I really wanted to help inspire people to recognize several things. One is that like, this is what some people, you you may find some evil about a, a particular thing, like a war or a country or what, what a nation's doing, but there's still being good being done on the macro le- or the micro levels, right? It's, it's the, the smaller things. What are, what are people doing to get them through a day? There's a lot of encouragement that you need and you can get that through prayer, um, through shared suffering and through relationships has been a very powerful lesson. I mean, and, and so I felt like getting through relationships with my platoon sergeant, with my men, with my commanders, with the other people that I served with, that helped get through the deployment, but also a relationship with my family back home who was praying for me, a relationship with God and with also Jesus to know that they, they were encouraging me to, to live so that I could, I could live for them and for others. It was kind of like a preservation, but also, okay, I want to help inspire and encourage other people. So a lot of those were the reasons. Um, the other thing was just to be able to share for people that are looking for leadership experience, right? There's a lot of stuff that we come in as a lieutenant, unless you're prior service, which I, I usually don't consider myself because it was just that one year that I mentioned enlisted um, in the reserves. But unless you're prior service, you come in as a lieutenant, there's just so much you don't know. And it's it's very intimidating. And so there was a ton of growth where I would I would make a wrong decision. And I'd have to admit that to my platoon sergeant. And we'd have to fight through maybe our differences verbally. Um, and discussions behind closed doors. And all of that helped me to be a better person. It, it, he would help encourage me. Sometimes we disagree. And even in our disagreements, I felt like I was growing. And so I wanted people to be able to see, hey, first of all, we're always learning. We're always growing. We should always be noting not only the external battlefield, but the internal, what's going on inside of me, right? What is the conflict that I need to resolve within me or in the relationships that are affecting me? And I, I felt like all of this, whether it was when I was a platoon leader, or an executive officer, or as a, a staff member, that I, I was sharing all of these in the book to, to help people to, to see how they can grow and overcome and learn from uh, different examples I had been through. Well, I've read your book, so I know you're being uh, exceptionally modest about your experiences in Iraq. So I encourage anyone listening to the podcast to get a hold of Matt Saker's book, The Armor of God, and read into it a little bit more because there's some fascinating things in it, some very deep thoughts. So, Matt, you did this tour in Iraq, but you didn't get out of the Army right after that. You had many more years of successful service after that. So what was after Iraq for you? So after we got back to Fort Lewis, Washington, it was the captain's career course. And so I I went to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, because it was still there at the time for armor officers that later moved to Fort Benning. And so I actually went to the last armored captain's career course um, there at Knox. Then they changed them to like the maneuver one. It was kind of infantry and armor combined. And 
I was really unsure. Like I was kind of going to say, okay, well, what's my next assignment? I don't know if I want to stay in. A lot of people were getting out of the military as, as captains, even NCOs that had been in for nine years were getting out because of the, the, the horrors that they had seen in the war. I think especially the defect bombing, but also a lot of the firefights that we had been in. And I've only you know talked about one or two of them here, but it, it really, I, I was kind of on the fence and I said, okay, well, let me just do another I'll do the captain's career course. I'll see what happens. I actually tried to go civil affairs, but it, it didn't work out. It seemed like that I was meant to stay armor. And so the, my next stop after that was Fort Polk, Louisiana to be an observer controller trainer, or that's what they were later called. It was just an OC at the time, observer controller. And some people call it being a referee, but it's, it's of course, more than that. You're teaching, coaching, and mentoring officers that come through. And so what I really found was that I enjoyed teaching. And I had barely done that as a platoon leader or as an executive officer. I did a little bit with the Iraqis, but I hadn't really gotten much of a chance to teach because I was learning so much as a lieutenant. But as a junior captain at uh, the Fort Polk Junior or JRTC, you know, the, the Joint Readiness Training Center, all of a sudden getting to coach these lieutenants that weren't much younger than I, only a few years, but they didn't really know what I had been through in Iraq. Most of them, some some had. Um, but also they, they weren't sure how to use vehicles in some cases. They were infantrymen that were like, hey, how do we do these Humvees? How do we do these uh, strikers? How, how, I've never done this before. And I would get to teach them about my experiences and I would combine it with doctrine. It was an army doctrine, but I would also get to combine it with my experiences and I would teach them how to do it. And they would just totally bomb it the first time they did it uh, at the beginning of the two weeks that they were with me there, that their unit had deployed uh, to that area. But then you got to see them uh, do it a little better the next time. And then they would keep coming back to you and say like, hey, this is what my plan is. And you would make a couple recommended adjustments. They would follow them and it would get better. And then by the end, they wouldn't even come to you anymore. And some people might be insulted because their pride's hurt, but that's good. That's when the light bulb has gone off. They get it. And they would execute it almost to perfection or at least compared to what it was at the beginning. And so that really gave me a joy because it was like, wow, I, I gave them enough doctrine and experience. And they, they came back because they were humble. And they learned and they grew and they went out and they made themselves better. And so I just realized how much I loved that and seeing that that you can make people better in a professional aspect, but also, you know, the, applying this to the spiritual aspects and, and to somebody's person. To, it, it's written in uh, Proverbs 1632. I don't, this is from the New American Standard Bible. It says, one who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and one who rules his spirit than one who captures a city. And of course, I had captured a city in Mosul, right? 2004 to 2005. That's what it, it took a brigade plus. I mean, it wasn't just me personally. It's 5,000 or more of us. And with lots of support from the Air Force and, and bombs and everything, that was very difficult. But but if this thing is true when I'm reading, and I believe it is, then you know, being slow to anger is even better than that. And being able to rule my own spirit is greater than capturing that city. And so I really started taking more of a passion in the years to come for the rest of my military career of like, Hey, how do I become a better teacher, a better student? How do I better myself on the inside so that while I'm bettering other people outside and, and of course, getting myself better professionally? So the, the two things, they seem to really combine uh, in, in the state, the years that followed my, my time at the tra Joint Readiness Training Center. So I know at some point you ended up as an instructor at the United States Military Academy at West Point. So how did that happen? And what did you think about your experience there? Yeah, so I had applied for it actually from Fort Polk, and um, they denied it because I, I hadn't been through my command experience yet. And so I, I did my commands. I, I did two of them in um, at Fort Riley, Kansas, 
And after Fort Riley, I actually was an instructor at the Army Logistic University. And I had applied to West Point a second time. And they said my math score on the uh, GRE was too low. And I was like, what, I'm too dumb in math to teach history? But okay, whatever, I'll, I'll go teach it at, at ALU. And so teaching logisticians uh, some, some kind of tactics and decision-making and culture and leadership skills at the logistics captain's career course, I, I found that, man, I really love this. This is cool. And maybe someday, and, and, and I was about 10 years in at that point, maybe I can still do West Point. And so I, I tried to do RTC. I tried a couple time, more times at West Point, but I kept uh, getting turned down. And finally, it was after my um, S3 and XO time at Fort Irwin. Um, at the National Training Center as Op4. We were the opposing force out there, kind of playing the bad guys or sparring partners for the rest of the, the U.S. Army and, and Marines and Air Force. And I, I really, again, loved teaching. And I was just like, yeah, maybe I'll try West Point one more time. And I had a, a, a battalion commander there who had taught in the social department. And he was a great commander. He's, actually, I could probably say he was the greatest, best commander I'd ever had in uh, a side, he and Captain Jacobson, who got killed in, in combat in the Mosul defect bombing, they were probably tied for the best one I'd ever had. Um, of course, you know, different flavors, but both of them still awesome. And uh, what Chris Danbeck had shared with me was, you know, yeah, you could you could do history department, but Soch is better. And I was like, well, I'm a history guy. So he wrote a recommendation and we thought it would help get me in and at least got me an interview with somebody when I got to Fort Benning, which was because I got chosen for the first SFAB. Yeah the Security Force Assistance Brigade. And so the very first one of those was standing up. Everybody looked at my file on paper, not knowing a lot of the PTSD that I had. And I, I frankly didn't know it very much. That um, it was just, it, it was really overwhelming. And it wasn't overwhelming until I was actually in there and doing a lot of the training I hadn't done since I was a platoon leader in many cases. And so I came forward and kind of shared with the Army what was going on and that I, I wouldn't want me in command right now. And this was like my third command. So uh, I said, you know, kind of with, with respect, I, I probably do need to step down. And, you know, I talked to several channels and they said, well, let's, let's have you write doctrine then. Let's keep you here at Fort Benning. Well, while I was getting ready to move over to that doctrine writing job, and I actually did do it for about nine months as the striker doctrine chief, uh, I got a call and an interview. It was about, how, hey, we're, we're trying to have somebody hired here for military innovation. And I said, oh, I wrote a paper at Fort Leavenworth at the Commander General Staff College on that. And he said, send it to me. And this is the uh, the head of the um, Defense and Strategic Studies Department. So I sent it to him. And after that, he said, wow, well, based on this interview and based on what I've read, like, I'm going to recommend you. I can't promise anything. Well, apparently, the, the guy that had picked, had picked number one, he got tagged from a general and uh, got whisked away to do a, a, a general's aid job. And so I was the next one that got, to, got picked from this interview and uh, my paper that I'd sent. And so I got, got to go up to West Point and they said, well, what about command? You, you know, you're, you're getting ready to make Lieutenant Colonel, like, aren't you going to be a, um, a battalion commander? And I said, honestly, I've assessed myself and knowing my strengths and weaknesses and knowing that with my PTSD and some other things, I, I don't want to be a battalion commander, even though I respect people who, who do. Uh, I want to teach. That's what I want to do when I get out and after I retire. So I would love to finish my career with teaching at West Point. And it, it fit my love for strategy my almost my entire life that I'd had. And military innovation uh, was, was something that I always enjoyed as well. Ever since I was playing Civilization, Sid Meier's you know, game, and you could advance uh, weaponry and stuff in your empire and, and conquer more or build cities or whatever. So I, I just really seemed like a great fit. And when I got up there teaching strategy and military innovation and also hit, uh, history in the history department, 
I, I just loved it. And I said, this is what I have to do when I retire. So that kind of brought me up to West Point and my, my love for those things. Well, I was thinking when you were talking about your love for risk and board games, you developed your own strategy game, didn't you? Can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, so it was called Dimecraft. Uh, that was the name that we ended up using for it. And it was actually based on a, a game that I had already designed for, for Lego. It was when I was a teenager. And I just kind of continued to modify it. But something that was uh, for the basic strategy or strategic studies students. And the, the whole point was to expose them to the elements of power, you know, which are, are that's where the Dimecraft name comes from, right? Diplomacy, information, military, and economic. And how do we use these elements of power? How does a nation use them? How, sometimes you could even boil it down to people. Um, how, do, how do social groups or individuals use these things to kind of get what they want? You know, you always have a school bully that's it, all he does is the M for military, right? But there's so many better ways than just the M. And so how do we use diplomacy? How do we use information? And how do we use economic growth um, to, to better ourselves? So what this Dimecraft game did is it divided the class up, to, up into four different countries. And each country had about four or five, maybe maybe three students in some cases. And their whole job was to plan how they were going to win this game. And they didn't have to conquer everybody else, although that's generally what a lot of them would default to at first until they realized, hey, this doesn't work. I, there, there were different resources to manage. So each turn you could manage resources and you only had a limited number and you could make, use them to give, make, make yourself be better off economically, uh, help yourself more militarily or to put ambassadors and, and work toward a diplomatic victory. And information was used sort of throughout the entire thing because you had to pay attention to, to what the other nations were doing. Because if they were close to an economic or a diplomatic victory or even a military one, you had to be able to stop it so that you could win. And so I realized that it forced them into you know, having an end goal for the game and, and looking at what the ends, ways, and means were to accomplish what they wanted to in the game. And that there were multiple avenues they could use. They didn't just have to be stuck with the military element. And some of the best games that I started to see played, both in my classroom and there were other instructors that adopted this, and we even started using it to train faculty before I left West Point, is people were winning through diplomatic and economic victory more often. And we even made expansions to this thing. And you could just see the fun the students were having. And, you know, we got feedback from them. Um, they, they were just very excited. And it was good to see that something simple that the, the, the startings of I had begun as a teenager it, with Legos in my basement with my friends had been able to kind of be simplified to be brought into a classroom at West Point and teach people strategy and, and how to really manage power and to, to better themselves through relationships with other nations or other people. Well, Matt, if I remember correctly, you did not have to retire from the Army when you did. So what made you pull the trigger on your career and say, hey, it's been great, but I want to go do something else? Yeah, so I think the the PTSD was a big part of it, you know, and the traumatic brain injuries that I'd had, not just from the first time I was wounded, but the second time. And I'd had a few other bumps in Humvees or another airborne um, units like at Fort Polk, where I was just noticing that my my heart was not in going overseas and participating in combat. My heart was in teaching. And I had seen that at Fort Polk. I had seen that at, at ALU. Um, Army Logistic University at Fort Lee, Virginia, and I definitely seen it at West Point. And so the thought of continuing to serve at West Point was appealing. I, I would have had to start my PhD, though, if I was going to be a retired civilian and try to teach there. And so I thought, well, well maybe I could teach either at the War College. And I, I often tell people where I'm living now in uh, central Pennsylvania that I think the War College was kind of the shiny metal object that God used to bring me to this area. 
because I love a certain age to be able to influence young adults uh, or those that are about to be adults. I'm really enjoying my teenagers. I've got three of them of, of my five daughters and I love the, the way they're able to wrap their brains around concepts that are both in scripture, but also about life, you know, about like dying, you know, like the, the influencing of relationships that we have with other people because life is about relationships. And so I thought, you know, I, I could do this a lot better if I'm no longer, you know, constantly doing what the army's uh, pace and pressure is and continuing to bounce my family around. My oldest daughter, um, she was get, getting ready to be a, a junior and then a senior in high school. So I wanted to have some stability for her. And we were really just, we had moved 11 to 13 times in a 20 year career. And so I really wanted to be closer to the family and, and find a place that I could move on to the next phase in life. I just, I really, the more I prayed about it, I, I felt ready and I, I, I got more confirmation from several sources. And so it seemed like, hey, perfect note to end on was teaching at West Point. Now let's go and see where I'm going to teach next. And right now it's looking like the direction that I'm getting my Pennsylvania teaching certification in of social studies or history for seventh and 12th graders. And I've done a lot of that as a substitute teacher. And I've really enjoyed it. I mean, there's some where AP US history or honors world history that I've gotten to teach for multiple days of absences. And I've just absolutely loved it. And, you know, I love the flexibility that I have in my schedule now. So it's it, it really is conducive to, to that growth and also my family time and, and the fellowship that I'm helping uh, lead in. Well, it sounds like you got a solid plan. I know it's really important for folks like us to have a second mission after they get out of the military to, to continue to serve and continue to find something to meaningful to fulfill their lives with. So I'm glad to hear that you found a way to do that. So we've talked about the past. We've talked about what you're doing now. How, where do you see yourself in the future? What are your future plans? So really the next, um, the next year or so I should finish up my, it's actually should be this year. I should finish up all the uh, course requirements for my certification, do my student teaching at one of the high schools. It's not very far from our house that our kids attend. And if after the student teaching is done, I'll be certified and I can teach at any school in Pennsylvania and, and many other states too, but I, I plan on staying here and really just teaching uh, high school or middle school history, um, social studies, you know, being able to connect the, both the experiences that I've lived for 20 plus years in the military to what I've learned as, you know, having a master's and an undergraduate degree in history and military history specifically, because as we know, and any student that's been through middle and high school knows there's a lot of long periods of history that are filled with wars and, and military related things. And so having those, but also the things that I've learned internally about relationships and about ruling my own spirit, all of that just seems to connect with what today's youth needs. And so I'm really excited to be able to plug into a community like that for the next 10 or, or more years and see where it goes from there. You know, I, maybe I'll do it the rest of my life until they force me out. Maybe I'll do another 10 years and, and retire a second time or 15. I, I don't know. Uh, I'll take it a day at a time. So, Matt, we're coming towards the end of this segment, and I'm going to turn it over to you for the last word, but I have one more question. You haven't been retired that long, and some of your former students could still be here at West Point. So, reflecting back on all your time in uniform and all the, the times that you've had to think about different things, what advice would you give to these cadets who are about to commission or any individual who's about to become an officer in the Army today? That's a great question. I, I think I would say try to find the balance between spiritual 
um, the, the spiritual pillar, if you will. And, and this is actually in, you know, the, the Army uh, Comprehensive Fitness Guide. So I'm not just saying it because of my faith, but find a connection on the spiritual level with, with God, with Christ, and we're relationships with other people that can encourage you and, and build you up, but also that you can encourage them, right? You don't get um, you don't get better. If you, if you look at Israel, which I got to visit from West Point, that was one of my my amazing trips. I got to see the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is freshwater because it's got a source in and it's got a source out. It, it's come down from the mountains. Jordan River is mostly freshwater, but then the Dead Sea is, is where it all stops. And it's, it's you know, highly salt water, so, so filled with salt water that nothing's flown out of it and nothing can live in that thing. And so you've got to have people that are encouraging you, but also you need to be doing something to encourage other people. Finding a way to serve others is, is very key. Um, balancing those things, those relationships and, and that service and that spiritual connection with the academics, with, with the other, other pillars that people are focused on. I, I think, you know, whether it's somebody at West Point or, or somebody that's getting ready to graduate any college or at any phase in their military career is making sure you find that the right connections that are going to propel you to success and give you the strength and the fortitude to go on. Because there are a lot of days you feel like quitting and that you're not going to be able to make it. And it's those relationships uh, that get you through. It's not just having, you know, a, a, a good academic brain in your head. That's a great answer. Thank you, Matt. And then to close us out, open mic for you. Anything that you want to follow up on? Anything else you want to say? Floor is yours, brother. Yeah, no, thanks. It's it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I really appreciate all the help that uh, that you've been, you know, over over my career, and particularly at the end of it. And it's it's really encouraging to be able to reflect back on these things. So I, I want to thank you for the opportunity. And I also want to say that to those that are maybe getting ready to get out of the military that might listen to this and transition to that next phase of life, whether they're retiring or their 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 initial or later term is up, is the, the fight doesn't end. You're going to feel like, oh, my goodness, I'm not that anymore. I'm not, you know, all the things of the prestige, the honor, whatever some people may have had pride in, uh, maybe maybe the bad pride or the good pride, um, the kind where they're just thankful to serve their country. Or, or it could be the arrogant pride of, man, now I don't matter it so much. You, you do matter. There's a mission that, that you have uh, after retirement. And you didn't have all those experiences. You didn't have all that training. You didn't have all the knowledge and the academic support and the relationships and connections to just quit now. And so you may have suicidal thoughts. You may have days where you struggle and you feel like you can't get a job. And, and you know, I, I, I've had those. I've struggled. Uh, I didn't get a job after applying for 30 of them at first. But eventually it's going to pull through because what you have and who you are matters and find a way to be able to plug that in to the community that you find yourself in so that you can make people better and all of these things that we've been talking about. Matt, thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing your battlefield stories with us today. You're welcome. Thanks.